Good morning, Incarnation. Please pray with me as I open God's word for us this morning. Father, we pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us, that your word would be to us a precious thing, that it would bring us to life in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I seriously wish I could be with you in person this morning, but what a joy it is to have a faithful shepherd like Fumi to take charge when neither Taylor nor I can be with you. And we have the blessings of so many other leaders besides. So thank you to all of you who are taking a lead, stepping up on this strange Sunday. Uh, finding out yesterday that Benjamin has COVID has made this a very emotional weekend for us. And today, what I want to talk about is emotions. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, looking at chapter 8 today. And in this chapter, the people of Israel make a remarkable journey from grief into joy, from mourning into dancing. So I want to think about what role should emotion play in our relationship with God? And I really care about this question because in my college group back in England, the answer was pretty much no role whatsoever. <laughs> emotion has nothing to do with it. So they said, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? then you're saved. It doesn't matter how you feel. The truth doesn't care how you feel about it. It's just as true either way. And they said the Christian life is about suffering now and glory later. So dry your tears, mustn't grumble, stiff up a lip, and let's get on with doing the work of serving God. That's what I was taught in England. And then I came here to the US and I found something quite different. From my perspective, you guys are actually very emotional, and this is an enormously emotionally driven culture. People here talk about their feelings all the time. They have a lot of language for how they feel, and they're not ashamed to let their feelings dictate some of their decisions. So you guys might take a, a day off work for a mental health day, or skip an event that you said yes to because you don't feel like going anymore. Or you might change your whole careers uh, when it makes no practical or financial sense because you just weren't feeling fulfilled as a person. The Disney mantra is follow your heart as if the heart is some kind of infallible guide. And I think a lot of Americans do just as Disney sets, as if their emotions really are the best measure of what they should be doing, even the only measure that's trustworthy. Now, I'm not here today to tell you that my culture's right and yours is wrong. In fact, one of the reasons that I moved here was that I like this culture and I feel like I fit in better here. Uh, what I'm here to tell you today from God's word is that both our cultures are wrong. The English for valuing emotions too little and the Americans for valuing emotions too much. What we find in the faith of the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 8 is emotional engagement that matches the truth, but is also subject to the word of God. So the burning hot core of this chapter, the hinge verse, the turning point, is verse 10 where Nehemiah says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's such a lot of power 
in that verse. And today I want us to tap into that power. So first I want to talk to those of you who are more like my English culture. I know that you're there. Um, the ones who tend to be less emotional and more intellectual, who make decisions based on the facts. Um, and there's obviously a lot of merit to this approach, but I want you to notice in this chapter the emotional engagement of these Hebrews in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is admirable because it's appropriate. So by this point in the book of Nehemiah, the war project is finished. At the beginning of chapter 7, the gates are all in place and the gatekeepers are appointed. And that great accomplishment is then sealed up in the text by this report of the census of all the Israelites who had returned from the exile. We didn't preach on chapter 7, but it shows that some 50,000 people came back to Jerusalem and to the surrounding towns. So they finished the wall. What comes next? What do all these people do now? And it's very obvious in chapter 8 that their very next priority is to God and to his law. And actually, maybe that was their first priority all along, as if all of this wall building was really only scaffolding for the real project, which was to come back to the law, to hear the law and understand it and learn it and live it and to live to please God again. Because if you, if you remember back, the people needed leadership to get started rebuilding the wall. But there's no apparent nudge from the leaders here. Chapter 8 begins with the people taking the initiative. All the people gathered as one man, it says, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. All the people came together as one man. That's 40 or 50,000 people. Think about where in your life you might have seen that kind of crowd gathering for a single purpose, maybe for a football game or a rock concert or a political rally or a protest march. Think about a group that size. Can you imagine that kind of crowd gathering at dawn at six in the morning to implore their priest, read to us from the law of God? There's passion there. There's hunger and desire. And what kind of a priest is ever going to say no to that request? Is Ezra going to tell these people, go back to bed, come back later? No, this might have been the best day of his whole life. The men were there, the women were there, even the children were there who were old enough to understand language. And he got to teach them and explain the word of God to them for five or six hours while they stood up in honor of the word of God. What a marvelous day this was. The people came together as one and they declared, the word of God is ours. Give it to us. And the teachers replied, yes, yes, the word of God is yours. Here it is. And they read it and they taught it patiently so the people would understand it. And verse 8 says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And when they understood it, their first response was to weep. Verse 9 says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And I think we can understand their tears, can't we? It was the overflow 
of an overwhelming mixture of emotions. They wept for all the sorrow of the exile and all the lost years. And they wept for the joy of finally being home again for a brand new start. They wept for the grief of their own sin and their ignorance of God's ways. And they wept for the goodness and the mercy of God who would love and accept them anyway. They wept as the discoverers of a priceless treasure, sought bitterly against hope over many miles and many years. And they wept with the gall that they'd had that treasure in their hands all along and had treated it with contempt. So all in all, these are the tears of repentance. And all the children of God know them. If we have come to know and believe the truth about God, how could it not move us? How could we see God as noble as he is, as long-suffering as he is, and not be moved? How could we understand the wrong that we have done him and the kindness that he has given us in return and not be moved? So yes, the English are right. The truth is the truth, regardless of how we feel about it. But if we have never wept over this truth, could we possibly have understood it properly? I hope that there are worship songs that make you cry. And I hope that sometimes reading the Bible makes you cry because that shows that you are alive in God and you're understanding his message properly. When it comes to these Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 8, their emotional response demonstrates that they understood the word of God. And in my view, it must be the same for us too. So there is a place for emotions in our faith. But second, it should not be a governing place. So now I want to address those of you who tend more to the side of American culture that has a high trust in emotions and allows them to govern decisions. There's a huge challenge to this perspective in verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to read this whole section again because it's the heart of this chapter. It contains the only direct speech in the whole chapter apart from the two amens in verse 6. But listen to verse 9 again. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, this is very striking for us. When was the last time you told someone, you told an adult, don't cry? What would happen to an American counselor if he told a patient in his office, stop crying? He'd be in trouble, right? 
He'd probably lose that client. He might even lose his job because in our culture, it is deemed a sin to contradict someone else's emotions. We view emotions as sacrosanct. They may not be questioned and squashing them or ignoring them in some contexts might be viewed as an act of abuse. Perhaps in some cases, we would even go so far as to seat our emotions on God's own throne, giving them our full trust and unquestioning obedience. But Nehemiah's people, emotionally awake as they were, did not do this. Nehemiah was bold to say on the authority of God's word, stop crying. This day is holy to the Lord. And the reason he said that was that they had arrived in their calendar into the season of Sukkot, into the Feast of Booths, which is a feast of joy. So their calling as a people at this time of the year was not to weep, but to rejoice. And then the Levites in verse 11 repeated this message and the people in verse 12 obeyed it. It says, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So these people, they allowed their minds their understanding and the instructions of their leaders to change the course of their emotions from grief into joy. In other words, these people allowed their emotions to be ruled by God and by his word. So are we aware that God's word in both the Old and the New Testaments takes authority over our emotions to rule them and to direct them. God appointed in the law of Moses seasons for fasting and grief, as well as seasons for dancing and joy. And Paul commanded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And he commanded the Romans to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So we see here on the one hand that our emotions are important, but on the other hand that they must submit to God just like the rest of us does. If God declares a holy season of rejoicing, then we must rejoice with his people, however much we feel like weeping. And if he declares a holy season of fasting with repentance, then we must mourn with his people, however much we might feel like dancing. Accepting his lordship over our hearts is as important as accepting it over our souls and over our minds and over our bodies. And this is a major reason that we in this church have seasons in our church calendar. Christmas and Easter for joy and Lent for sorrow. They put us through this emotional boot camp. They align our hearts with God's timetable. So now coming back to Nehemiah, let's make sure that we notice from the text that their emotion of grief wasn't wrong. It wasn't a wrong emotion. It was completely appropriate in its own right. And in the very next chapter, these same people are going to gather again for a very extensive confession of their sins. But it's about the timing. As the timing worked out with the Feast of Sukkot, obedience to God's word looked like rejoicing first, celebrating God first before they lamented their own failures and doing it that way around showed that they were now willing to follow God's timetable instead of their own fancies. So I think Nehemiah critiques English culture for giving emotions too low of a place and also American culture for giving emotions too high of a place. 
But probably the very best part of this chapter is its vision um, that setting emotions in their proper place really works. It really brings about joy and flourishing. So Nehemiah surely taps into some deep wisdom in verse 10 when he tells the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that an amazing verse? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the people in this passage prove Nehemiah right. Because first they obeyed him and they set off to go through the motions of rejoicing, cutting down leafy branches to sing and dance before the Lord. But they end up at the end of the chapter actually being full of joy. Verse 17 says there was very great rejoicing. So the people tried out this way of obedience and they quickly found joy. And I really think there's a deep secret buried in this passage, a hidden mystery of the human heart. And it says that deep joy is not found in having what we want. But deep joy is found in wanting what we have. The people in this chapter rejoiced because of what they had. They came at the beginning and they said, the word of God is ours. And they wanted it and they received it to themselves as a precious treasure. And upon hearing the word, they realized the promises of God are ours. This isn't some distant word for some other people. This is for us. It makes commands to us and it makes promises to us. And if we obey, then We are going to receive those promises. They are ours. And then finally, in keeping that word, they discovered now the joy of the Lord is ours. It is ours. Now, we've got to remember that the word of God and the joy of God had always been theirs. The word of God was theirs before. It had been theirs for centuries. The difference now is that they wanted it. They treasured it. They wanted what they had. And that difference made all the difference for their joy. So again, joy is not in having what we want. Joy is in wanting what we have. And that is really good news for us saints, because the truth is that we now have everything. Everything we need to be happy is ours already. You have it in your hands right now. You have the love of your heavenly father. You have a place in his family. You have a home in his eternal city where you will live and be with him forever. And while you wait for Jesus to come back for you, you have his Holy Spirit to live inside you, to comfort and to guide you and to give you a future and a hope. And you have a thousand other things besides. And if we can learn to want these things that we have, then we will discover the same secret of joy that these people discovered. So hard days like this day where things go wrong and where there's suffering and setbacks, those those are good days. These days are good for us, for teaching us to want what really matters. Maybe we can discover in our times of desolation that we are and always have been rich so that we can enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Amen.
Amen. Amen.